Buy more, save more with a patio door at Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. Buy three windows, save $500. Buy six, save $1,000. Buy a dozen, save $2,000 by adding a patio door. But only through April 30th. Set your free consultation now at PellaWI.com. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give us a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. It is tax day. Unless you request an extension, your taxes are due to be filed. Remember back in the day, it used to be the, the standard thing for every TV station that on tax day, what they would do is they would send cameras down to the post office and, and they'd have pictures of all the people lined up to drop their tax returns in the mail. Well, that doesn't happen very much anymore because you can still mail them and get them post marked. But most people don't do that. Most people just file electronically. Again, rendering this this thing that used to be kind of a standard of coverage, it's kind of useless because there's not going to be, I don't think, crowds at the post office or people waiting to get in line because you just hit that button, you file it electronically, and it is taken care of. All right, here is one of the most, I don't know if the word is bizarre, but it's a, certainly a bizarre story for today. Now, to get into the Guinness Book of World Records, typically you have to... You have to do things that require some degree of effort, and you go, wow, that, that's kind of interesting. That must be hard to do. And then there is this story. His name is Ramiro Alanis. He is back, back in the Guinness Book of World Records. What has he done? Has he found the cure to cancer? No. Did he donate, I don't know, 50,000 hours of his time working at a homeless shelter or trying to generate food for hungry people? No. He's in the Guinness Book of World Records for... Watching Spider-Man, the new movie, 292 times, setting a new world record. A Florida man, Ramiro Alanis, has won back a world record. I'll get to that in a minute. After watching Spider-Man No Way Home 292 times, he broke the record for most cinema productions attended of the same film in 2019 after watching Avengers Endgame 191 times. But in 2021... Arnaud Klein beat him out by watching some movie I've never heard of 204 times, according to the news release. To win back his title, Alana spent a total of 720 hours, or 30 days, watching the latest installment of the Spider-Man saga between December 16th and March 15th. For the first few weeks of his record attempt, he watched five back-to-back screenings each day. Now, I haven't seen that movie yet, but I'm sure it runs over three hours. So you're watching five screenings a day. So that's, that's, that's 15 hours plus the time in between the screenings when they're cleaning out the theater and things like that. Alanis estimates that he spent around $3,400 on movie tickets in total over the three months it took to set the record. In terms, the terms of the record dictate that the movie must be watched independently of any other activity, so he couldn't take a nap, use his phone, or even go to the bathroom while watching the film. Well, that kind of crosses out ordering that big gulp of Diet Coke, I guess. What's more, he juggled viewings of the film with family and work obligations. I'm guessing he's not married. I'm just guessing he's not married. 
But but that would just be me. Hundreds of viewings has made him an expert in the film's script, telling Guinness that he can pretty much recite the dialogue along with the movie. Well, if you watch something 292 times, yeah, you'd think that you would probably be able to do it. He said he did this in tribute to his late grandmother, who was his number one supporter, and I want to remain the record holder. Hmm. I don't know. Some grandmothers want you to be a doctor or a lawyer or, again, you know, make the world a better place. This guy, 292 times. That 720 days, 720 hours, and I think— I think that's probably light, you know, because, again, you've got all that, that time in between. That, that's, that's 30 days of your life that you're never, ever, ever going to get back. I don't want to be standing in front of St. Peter, you know, at the end and saying, gee, why did you take me this soon? I had all this other stuff I wanted to accomplish. And St. Peter would say, oh, yeah, you're the guy that spent like a month out of your life watching Spider-Man over and over. But at least for the moment— He's in the Guinness Book of World Records. Let's get started. 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. As I mentioned a moment ago, today today is tax day, and your income taxes are due unless you apply for an extension. If you apply for an extension, it doesn't it doesn't stop you from having to pay if you owe money. It doesn't stop you from having to pay, and it doesn't stop interest from accumulating on what you owe. It does, however, absolve you. If you get the, if you apply for the extension, you, you don't get the, the late payment fee. So if you're not going to be able to get your taxes in and you do owe money, trust me on this one. You, you, you want to you want to make sure you file for that extension. Otherwise, it, it gets even more costly than it otherwise would be. But here's the thing that I want to discuss with you. Do you know when they first started the income tax system, all tax returns were public records? So in other words, people could find out how much other people made. If you were curious how much your neighbor made, you, you could find that out. Matter of fact, um, newspapers, this used to be a, a big thing. Um, newspapers would run out and they would publish lists of how much big people, you know, the, the wealthy people, corporations, they would publish lists of how much money w- was paid. And movie stars, that would be it. You, you would see like lists. This is a movie star. Douglas Fairbanks paid this much. Gloria Swanson paid, you know, this much. In 1926, though, that was rolled back. And now tax returns are not made public. Matter of fact, one of the things that the IRS guards very, very carefully is public access to tax returns. When I was a federal prosecutor, in order to get access to somebody's tax returns, well, why would you want somebody's tax returns? Well, let's say I'm investigating – I don't know. I'm investigating Mr. Suspected Drug Dealer. And Mr. Suspected Drug Dealer has, I don't know, driving, he's driving three or four Porsches and they've got a big house. And you're wondering, okay, where did that money come from? And of course, I know the money came from from drug dealing. So what you would do is you you would get the tax returns and you'd be able to look at the tax returns and say, huh, guy says he's an ice cream uh, delivery driver. He he drives an ice cream truck or whatever and is reporting $15,000 in income. And you go, huh, all right, it doesn't really match out. But in order to get those tax returns, even as part of a federal grand jury investigation, I cannot tell you how many hoops that you would have to jump through. And that was, you know, when you were conducting a legitimate 
good faith criminal investigation. The IRS guards these very secretly. Now, we have had instances, remember when Donald Trump was the president, there were things that were, were leaked to the to the press, and you'd have, I remember one night on MSNBC, there was this breathless story that we've got a hold of Donald Trump's income tax return information from 2007, and they, they went public with it, and there was really nothing in it because the, the amount of taxes he paid were, I think, reasonable compared to the amount of taxes people would think he would owe. But tax return information is not made public. In Wisconsin, it is slightly different. People don't know this, but the amount of taxes that you pay is a public record. And there's all sorts of hoops that you have to jump through. But if you wanted to find out how much an individual paid in taxes, you could make a request and you could get that information. So it's... um, you don't get access to the tax returns. You don't get access to income, so you don't know how it was calculated. But that's why every once in a while you will see these breathless stories in the newspaper about typically, since they target Republicans, it'll typically be, oh, Senator Ron Johnson, you only paid X amount of dollars in state taxes. And, and of course, without the context of it, you can't really figure out whether that's good or bad because there's all sorts of reasons why people might have paid a small amount of, of state tax returns. And and again, you don't know, maybe one year it's this, another year it's more. But in Wisconsin, you can get that bottom line number, but just that bottom line number, the amount of taxes that, that you that were due and owing. But for the federal system, nothing like that. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, on tax day, let's start off the week with this question. Should tax in return information be public? Should it be, should the general public... Do we have an interest in knowing how much each one of us paid and how it was calculated? Do you have a right to figure out whether or not I am paying my fair share in your mind? Do I have a right to know how much you are paying? Should we just make all this stuff public so that we all know what we are contributing to our overall system of government? 855-616-1620. Should this all be public? Or should public officials, a condition of running for elected office, should you have to make your tax returns public? If you are, I don't know, a news commentator, should you have to make your tax returns public? Should you be able to find out how much your doctor is paying in taxes and how much your doctor's making? All right. Do we we keep these private now? Should we? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. When the income tax system was first developed, all tax returns were, were public, not just the amount of money you owe. In Wisconsin, you can, if you make the appropriate request and jump through the appropriate hoops, you can find out how much somebody paid in income tax, state income tax, but just that, and just that. Then you can perhaps extrapolate you know, how, how much their income was. But the question becomes, should we make this public for all? All right. One of our texters uh, says, for elected officials, yes, tax returns should be released to the public. Well, my question would be, what do you mean when you say elected officials? So if I run for local school board, should I have to disclose my my tax returns? If I run for state assembly, should that information be public? State Senate, um, county supervisor, U.S. Senate, you know, where do you end up drawing 
the line. Um, one of our other texters says, look, I don't think tax records should ever be made public. If somebody cheats on their taxes, I feel confident the IRS that they'll take care of the issue and then the public would find out. Otherwise, if it's all done legally on someone's taxes, then no, we don't have to know people's tax returns. I, that, see, that's where I come down on this. I, I agree. Matter of fact, if I were the king, I, I don't think people have should have a right to know how much in state income tax somebody else paid. I, I think that that's, that is private and that is that is personal. Now, at some point in time, and that's where I agree with, if you if you decide that you're going to cheat on your taxes and it becomes a tax issue and the IRS or the State Department of Revenue determines that you've done something inappropriate, there, there's all sorts of things that they can do, which will then become public. They can go, they, they can file a lien on your house. They can attach, they can file a, a lawsuit against you. They can you know, garnish your wages. They can bring criminal charges against you, at which point in time the public will know, you know, what what it was that you did. But this idea that, first of all, that, that anybody has the right to know anybody else's personal financial business, I, I reject it. Now, it could very well be for running for office, if there's a situation where you want to say, hey, Jeff, you're, you're going to run for office, not, but you're going to run for office, and I, I think maybe you have a conflict of interest, and they want to make the issue about that. Well, then you can raise the issue and I or any candidate can then decide whether or not they want to whether or not they want to respond to that by making the taxes public and saying no you're full of beans this is it but at the same time I think it's personal information I think it's private information Jeff make everybody's tax returns public unequivocally Quickly, no. This will make identity theft even more prevalent for routine criminals. Um, no question about that, Jeff. In a way, public in a way, publication of taxes would expose the fact that nearly sixty percent of tax filers pay zero federal taxes, and probably a third actually get money back from the government without paying anything. Yeah, but see, we we know that from the numbers. You don't necessarily need to know the individual tax records or the individual status. So I guess tax day, I think that that's information between you and the government, and I think it needs to stay that way. All right, breaking news. We have a gubernatorial election in Wisconsin. Tony Evers is running for a second term. It will be close, I think, unless the Republicans shoot themselves in the foot. Totally, it is unlikely that Evers will be reelected to a second term. But again, you know, I never underestimate the ability of the Republican Party in some cases to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. There are three announced Republican candidates, significant Republican candidates at this time, and actually really probably two. Former Lieutenant Governor Rebecca Clayfish has been running aggressively. A businessman and former Marine Kevin Nicholson is running. And then State Representative Timothy Rantham, he's running. He's the guy who's running on kind of the, um, what I would say, it's the, the whack job wing of the Republican Party, the, the tinfoil hat folks about here, we're going to like decertify the 2020 election. So those are the, the three main candidates. One of the names that's been bandied about a lot is Former Governor Tommy Thompson, who um, will be right now, he's 80 years old. So um, if he were to have been elected, he would be, well, 81 when he commences starting his term. Tommy Thompson was a force of nature in Wisconsin politics. He was elected governor four times. Tommy and I go back uh, when I ran for statewide office in 94. Tommy was running for 
his uh, third term at, at that point in time. He has a distinguished career. He served as the uh, HHS secretary during the Bush administration. And several months ago, after completing his tenure in March with the um, state uh, with the Wisconsin uh, educational system, the UW system, he has been floating the trial balloon of maybe he would get into the governor's race. If you haven't heard it, he announced this morning he would not be running for governor. Um, no real explanation, I think, at this point in time, but he just said he's not going to be running for governor. So Tommy Thompson takes his name off of the table. I have said this before. I said, first of all, I think if Tommy Thompson ran, he would probably get the governor the nomination, and he would go on to to beat Tony Evers handily. That's number one. Number two, I have been saying all along that I did not think Tommy Thompson, at the age of of 80 or 81, very, very— Look, he's energetic. He's got a lot of excitement. There's a lot of things I think he still wants to do with however much time he has remaining, and I have no doubt he's going to do great things. I never believed he was going to run for governor. Today he confirms it. Our number, 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, let's tee this up. Are you sorry that Tommy has decided to pass on the governor's race this year? Me, not really. I, I think he would have won. I think he's got a lot of energy. But as I have said repeatedly in the past, I think there comes a time when you need a new generation of, of leaders. And Tommy Thompson, to me, has very been there, done that. And I think it's time to move on. So I'm not sorry he's not running, even though I consider him to be a friend. And if he did run, I think he would have won handily. 855-616-1620. Are you sorry Tommy won't be on the ballot? We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620 is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Jeff, I'm a little disappointed that Tommy Thompson isn't running. I miss the common-sense approach of politicians like Thompson and what they represent to me. Like most politicians today, the candidates running are partisan, and I feel we need to have a Republican candidate that transcends that. That being said, because of his age, I do see why Thompson isn't running. Jeff, I'm absolutely disappointed that he's not going to run. Um, now I'm going to have to seriously consider voting for Tony Evers. Hopefully Tim Michaels will run. We'll discuss that in just a minute. No, sorry, he's too old. Time for newer, younger people in public offices. 855-616-1620. Tommy Thompson ends months of speculation by saying he's not getting into the governor's race. All right. Are you disappointed? We continue the conversation in a moment. 855-616-1620. Bill in Appleton. Bill, good afternoon. Yeah, good afternoon. Um, I'm, I hate to see Tommy Thompson not do anything because I love the guy, but I'm glad he's not running because this country needs term limits, age limits, uh, and I don't want to hear stuff about discrimination be 75 years old or whatever age you want to put it at you don't belong running the public office yeah i um bill That's th- my thought. no bill th- I, I i mean i think i did a related topic to this on friday i i i agree i mean this is i mean the conversation we were having is diane feinstein who is um 88 years old 
who has another three years or four years left on her term, who is apparently, according to reports um, in, and this isn't the conservative press, this is like the, the San Francisco newspapers, a lot of people are concerned that she is suffering from d- dementia, and she, she had another several years left on her term. Charles Grassley, who's like 88 himself, is running for re-election um, to a six-year term out, out in Iowa. At some point in time, and, and of course what happens is in these states that are either heavily Republican or heavily Democrat, it's you can say well somebody can challenge you but it's almost impossible to challenge in a heavily let's say democratic state like San for like California okay first of all Diane Feinstein she she's amassed millions and millions of dollars and so you know for a young democrat to run against her they're going to have to figure out where they're going to get the money and then they're going to have to run on a campaign essentially saying you're too old which is is a tough issue to to do that's why i agree with you bill and i've been arguing this before i don't know what the, the magic limit is whether it's 75 and i i think for me it would be you you can't run for office after you hit 75. If you're in the middle of a six-year term, you know, when you turn 75, you can certainly complete your term. But I think there does need to be upper age limits, and I would apply that to federal judges as well. And, and yeah, I, look, Tommy Thompson is just a force of nature and lots and lots of, of energy that's out there. I had a chance to spend some time with him at our, our Christmas radio broadcast show in uh, when we taped it in November at the— um, Ingleside Hotel, and I just had a great time chatting with him. Got a lot of excitement, but at the same time, I think it's important to pass the baton, and I'm glad to see him not run. However, I do repeat that I think this is an important race, um, and I think Tony Evers is ev- eminently beatable. And I, like I say, I have no doubt. I think if Tommy Thompson ran, I think he would have probably beaten Evers I don't know, 55, 45, maybe, you know, more. At the same time, I I think it's important to have that sort of generational type of thing. Jeff, I'm not disappointed because Tommy would only be a one-term governor due to his age. Republicans better get this right and pick the correct candidate. All right, which then, of course, begs the question of of where do we go from here? Because with, with Tommy Thompson out of the race, where what does the race look like? I've been saying for the longest time that I think it, it's former Lieutenant Governor Rebecca Clayfish's, I think it's her race to lose. I, I think right now, if a primary were held tomorrow, she she wins. There are concerns, though, that would she be the best candidate to take on Tony Evers? Because Republicans want to find somebody that, that wins. The other candidate that's out there right now that's serious, the, the guy the guy from who's running on the tin uh, hat idea of trying to like decertify the election. I, I don't even pay much attention to that. The other candidate is Kevin Nicholson, who has run for other things before, but he, he was the guy who said, well, I don't know. I'm going to either run for Senate or governor. I'm going to wait to hear what uh, Ron Johnson does. And when Ron Johnson announced he was going to run for re-election, then he decided I'm going to run for governor. That That's not really the, the, the basis, in my opinion, to kind of base a, a campaign on. I, I want to get elected, so I'm going to see what office is opening up. And I don't get the sense that Nicholson is gaining any significant traction against Rebecca Clay. The intriguing notion that's out there is a guy by the name of Tim Michaels, who Republican insiders know. He ran unsuccessfully for Senate in 2004, but over the course of the last you know, decade and a half, 
almost two decades. He's been a fixture in Republican Party politics. His family owns an energy construction sort of business. Um, He would be able to, if he got in the race, immediately pump millions of dollars into his own campaign, something that Rebecca Clayfish is in a position to do. So, I mean, I I think a, a Michael's Clayfish race would be extremely interesting whether or not, I mean, Rebecca Clayfish has been pretty much endorsed by everybody who was associated with with Scott Walker during his terms and things like that, as you might expect from the Walker lieutenant governor. And I continue to believe that she would be a formidable factor. But the Michaels campaign is intriguing. And uh, at that point in time, I think Kevin Nicholson becomes sort of like the, the third participant there. But Tim Michaels versus Rebecca Clayfish, I think they would both be outstanding candidates. The fact that Michaels can self finance is a huge, huge advantage. And candidly, I think both of them are a position to beat Tony Evers in November. But now that Tommy Thompson has cleared the decks, that's what you want to look for. Does Tim Michaels get into the race? And can Tim Michaels give a dialogue and differentiate himself enough from Rebecca Clayfish to steal away all the support that Rebecca has generated over the course of the last year or two? Either one of them, in my opinion, would be a far superior choice to the person who's in the state house now. But I agree with one of our texters. Republicans have to get this right. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. If you hadn't noticed, as long as we're talking about the governor's race, uh, Tony Evers, two interesting things happened on Friday. First of all, when politicians are going to do things that are, well, they know are going to be unpopular and they don't want people to know about them, typically it'll happen on a Friday afternoon. That That's just it because people – People are punched out for the weekend. The the Saturday papers, the Saturday news shows are are the the least watched of the week. So whenever you're going to do something that you know isn't going to go over very well and you don't want people to know about, typically Friday afternoon is when this gets dumped out. Now, if you're going to do something that's extremely unpopular that you don't want people to know about, well, when do you do that? Well, not only a Friday afternoon, but a Friday afternoon before a holiday weekend. So I don't know, maybe it's the the Friday afternoon before, and if the 4th of July falls on a weekend, let's say the 4th of July is on a Saturday, you're you're doing that on Friday the, the 3rd. Memorial Day, you're going to do it on that Friday. But if you have something that is really, really unpopular, you know it's going to be controversial, and you don't want people to remember it, you know when you do it? You do it the afternoon of Good Friday, because you're hoping, okay, well, you know, everybody's going to be concentrating on Easter. And of course, this year, you've also got Passover and the start of Ramadan. Hopefully, nobody's going to be paying attention to, at least that's what the Evers administration hopes, to what he did on Good Friday afternoon. I don't think he's going to get away with it, because on Friday afternoon, Tony Evers vetoed about 22 separate pieces of legislation that were passed by the the Republicans. And some of the bills, for example, he vetoed the bill that would have broken up MPS into smaller school districts, thereby guaranteeing that a number of people who are trapped, a number of students and their parents who are trapped in the bureaucratic mess that is MPS, they will continue to be trapped in that status quo. 
One of the other very, very controversial things that he, he vetoed is a bill which would have allowed parents to sue school districts if the school districts ignored the parents' requests as to how to address their children. What do you mean? What was that all about? Well, let's say you've got, I don't know, a, a child. You've got a seventh grader who goes in and says, I, um, I am Frank, but I, I want to be referred to as Francine. And do you tell that to the school officials? And so the parents either don't know that or the parents say, no, our, our kid is Frank. You know, we, we're, we're not letting our kid call themselves Francine at this point in time. And, and this is our sixth grade or seventh grade child, and we're the ones that are responsible for his upbringing, and we're the ones that are responsible for this. So, so no, we don't want you to do that. Well, the way it stands now is the schools can just ignore the parents. The schools can say, okay, we're going to do whatever we want. Sixth grader wants to be referred to this. That's fine. We don't have to Consult with the parents, and even if the parents tell us no, we can ignore it. This bill would allow parents to school, sue school staff who use names and pronouns chosen by their students if the parents disagree with the names or the pronouns. In other words, we would give some control back to the parents. Who in their right minds would think that this would be a bad idea? Who in their right minds seriously would think that school officials should be able to ignore the wishes of parents when it comes to how they deal with with the kids in schools. But this is precisely what Tony Evers has done. He's decided to side with the educational establishment, the status quo, in saying to parents, nah, you know, we, we don't care what you think as to how you're going to raise your kids. So he vetoed that bill. He vetoed a number of others as well. This is going to be the subject of more advertising over the course of the next several months and, and I think it, it, one of the things you see is it's a very, very winning issue right now. Parents are concerned with the fact that schools and the school bureaucracy has decided to ignore their wishes as to how they deal with the kids and how they implement curriculums and things like that. And Evers has decided to side with the status quo. Well, okay, that's all well and good, but that's going to be an issue. And he vetoes this stuff on Good Friday, hoping that nobody is going to notice. I don't think he's going to get away with that. The other thing that Evers did on Friday and was respond to the state Supreme Court. If you haven't been following this, the state Supreme Court came down with a four to three decision on the whole redistricting issue, and they chose maps that were drawn by Republicans as opposed to maps drawn by Tony Evers. The maps that are drawn by Evers as far as state electoral districts had been sent back by the Supreme Court. They didn't pass constitutional muster because Evers took race into account when drawing certain of these districts, and, and that's pretty much a, a no-no. So came back by a four-to-three vote, the state Supreme Court decided to adopt the maps that were drawn by the Republicans. Evers, incredibly upset about that, issuing this statement about this was this is one of these things. Um, it is an unconscionable miscarriage of justice for which the people of the state will say no reprieve for another decade. At a time when our democracy is under near constant attack, the judiciary has abandoned our democracy in our most dire hour. 
overreact much, Tony? Wisconsinites want a democracy. They want fair representation. They want fair maps. Today, they have received no recourse. Um, It is interesting to me that you have a guy who is denouncing and calling on this attack at a time when our democracy is under near constant attack, that this is the same guy who two years ago wanted to delay elections for, for months this is the guy who's now saying democracy is under attack. So I understand you've got the hyperbole there. For the moment, this ends the redistricting controversy, at least for the 2022 elections. Maybe there'll be more litigation for 2024. But at the end of the day, when it comes to all this, again, all this carrying on over gerrymandering and drawn districts, here, here's the fundamental problem that people don't, at least some people, don't want to address. Even though in Wisconsin the state is pretty much divided 50-50 between Republicans and Democrats, what happens is in Wisconsin and in other states as well, Democrats tend to cluster where they lived, where they live. The Geographically, the vast majority of the state is occupied by Republicans. Democrats are heavily represented in some of the urban areas, but particularly Milwaukee, city of, county to a lesser extent, but overwhelmingly in the city, and in Dane County, overwhelmingly in Madison, and and pretty heavily in the state. That's where the majority of Democrats live. When you are redrawing electoral districts, what happens is you're not— there's no obligation to try to balance things out because of or from you know political opinions. What you try to do is you try to keep communities together. So instead of saying, gee, we want to have a district that we think is 50% Republican and 50% Democrat, so we're going to start in the city of Milwaukee and we're going to run it all the way up the lake up to Sheboygan. Okay, so people in Sheboygan have really very little commonality of interest with people in the city of Milwaukee. What you do is you, you put neighborhoods together. When you do that, you end up with several areas that are overwhelmingly Democrat, maybe 70, 80 percent. But that's because that's where the Democrats are living. It's not a constitutional violation. And if Democrats want to change that, what they need to do is either figure out ways to bring in more voters who are in traditional Republican areas, or convince people who are living in the city of Milwaukee or in Dane County that they should be moving throughout the rest of the state. But as long as people pack themselves in and tend to associate based on political sort of stuff, you're you're, you're always going to have this happen. So a, a lot of this carrying on about gerrymandering, I candidly, I kind of roll my eyes about it because people live where they choose to live. Tony Evers views it as an assault on democracy, I think what he's just preparing himself for is what is going to be a tidal wave come November. But the bottom line is the guy who wanted to delay elections a couple years ago complaining about attacks on democracy, to me, it's somewhat rich. If you're keeping track of the crime statistics, not good. Carjackings, this time last year, 77 this time this year, 93, and last year was, I believe, an all-time record. Motor vehicle thefts, we talk about that a lot. Um, all-time record last year. This year, it's essentially level. 2,583 this time last year, 2,578 this time this year. Essentially, that is flat. The staggering number, though, is homicides. Um 
35 year-to-date last year, 61 this year. Non-fatal shootings year-to-date last year, 193, 192 this year. So that's essentially flat, but, but an unacceptable level of violence. And, of course, you saw this play out over the weekend. First of all, on Saturday night, police investigating a drive-by shooting near 35th and Highland, 7.20 p.m. Victim and suspect were driving in separate vehicles. Suspect displayed a firearm shot at the victim. He is expected to survive. Can't say that about the 17-year-old girl who was killed in a road rage shooting near 29th and Cortland last night. 17-year-old girl killed passenger in a vehicle when she was shot shortly before 7 p.m. So once again, walking on the streets, driving on the streets, you take your life into your own hands, and nobody appears to have any idea as to how to make it stop, because if they do, they're sure not saying it. Back with more in just a couple minutes. This is Jeff Wagner. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. If you have tried to go out and find a new car lately, good good luck. Because chances are you are looking at Major League Sticker Shock. And if you're somebody who's been forced to do that because of circumstances, say, beyond your control. I I told the story last week about a friend of mine whose car, and she only had one car, her car was stolen from the mean streets of Milwaukee a week ago Friday. The good news is it was recovered uh, relatively quickly, several hours later, but it it was totaled. Whoever stole it, took it on a joyride, slammed into a bunch of cars, trees, and ended up piling it into a fire hydrant. So the car is completely and totally totaled. So it's not a situation where you you can repair it. it. It's totaled. So you have to figure out some form of alternative transportation. So now my friend is in the situation of you've got to replace the car. That's it. The problem, though, is you're, you're not going to get – because it's a – you know, the, the car has been depreciated and stuff. You're not going to get a check which allows you to really, from the insurance company, once you even get the check, you're not going to be able to go out necessarily and and replace the same old, same old, because whether it's a new car or whether it's a used car, you are paying dramatically more. The the numbers are are kind of of staggering. If you look at what's going on, whether it's inflation in general or it's the supply chain shortages and things like this. I mean, here is the deal. The average price of a new car in December, now this includes SUVs, cars, and trucks, so I'm lumping them all together. The average price of a new car is $46,000, $46,000. That is in um, as of December. And that's, of course, assuming that you can find a, a car to buy. Um, Let's see, at the end of 2019, so, you know, two years ago, the average transaction price was $34,600. So it's gone up dramatically. Okay, that's new cars. If you say, well, what about used cars? Well, it's pretty much the, the same thing. The average price of used cars has gone absolutely through the roof as well. And you say, okay, Jeff, well, maybe this is going to force more people to electric cars. There's a story. Anybody who thinks that electric cars are the wave of the near future should really pick up the Wall Street Journal today because they've got a piece that's talking about if you think the supply chain shortage and you think that the computer chips are a problem with cars now, 
You haven't seen anything yet when it comes to the shortages that they're experiencing with the underlying materials to make batteries. It, it makes... It makes the computer chip problem look like computer chips are are plentiful. So anybody who thinks that, oh, okay, now you you get out of the internal combustion engines and and everybody's going to want to buy these electric vehicles and we've got all this pressure in California to only sell electric cars by 2026, they don't have the batteries. Forget all this other stuff about the power grid and all. There, There is an incredible shortage, and that's driving the cost of the electric cars up. So the bottom line of all this is if you're in the market for a a new car or even a a decent used car, what you're talking about is just an incredible price increase. And I mean, typically it would not be unusual for me. I've got a car that's a 2017 vehicle and, you know, it's fine. It's got 70 some thousand miles on it. I would tell you normally I would be at the point where you know, be the warranties have expired and things like that. I would be at the point where under normal circumstances, it wouldn't be a rush, but I'd be looking at, at, at perhaps, you know, replacing, you know, that vehicle sometime, I don't know, maybe when the next year's models come out, if I could get a 2022 that was still on the lot, I'd, and, you know, I could get a good deal on it. I'd, I'd look at trading in this vehicle. Well, no way. I mean, because first of all, that those you're not going to be able to replace the car. And yes, it's true. I could probably get more for my trade-in now than I could like two years ago, similar comparable cars. But, but what I would have to pay to replace it to get a new car, if I could find a new car, is going to turn out that I'm going to be a, a net loss anyway. So I've kind of decided, all right, I'm going to, I'll drive the car for another couple of years and you know pay for the repairs if there are any and see where we go. But that's okay because for me, it's a decision discretionary thing. I don't have to do it. But for lots of people out there, you know, you're you're either looking at a car that's pretty much kind of worn out or um buying a new car, but you can't replace it at a reasonable price. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And then when you couple in the fact that you have some people who really like don't have a choice, like my friend whose car was total, it has to be replaced. She has no choice, but there's no question the insurance money isn't going to cover you know what it's really going to cost her to get something comparable. You're starting to see how people are really, really, really in a world of hurt, particularly people of average means. Now, if you're somebody that's wealthy, okay, you know, that that five or 10 grand, you don't like paying it, but it might not make that much of a difference. But for somebody who doesn't have that much money that's sitting around that disposable income, first of all, it's like, all right, well, where where would I get $30,000 to, you know, pay for the new car? And now I can't get that car at $30,000. It's 30, it's 45,000. 855-616-1620. Have you been in the market for a new or used car lately? And, and what is what is going on and how are people going to be able how are average people going to be able to replace their cars when they need the new vehicle 855-616-1620 we discuss in a moment 855-616-1620 Jeff I was going to trade in my 14-year-old Toyota Highlander for a hybrid RAV4 until I saw the sticker price of $45,000 plus Looks like I won't be buying anything new since I can't afford it and it's not available 
anyway. Jeff, I believe that so many things are just stupidly overpriced right now. We are, in some respects, our own worst enemies, other than people who absolutely have to buy a large ticket item like a SUV for some reason. If the rest of us would just slow down and stop buying things, they would not be so darn expensive. Jeff, I've been in the market for two years waiting for prices to come back down on cars. It's just a joke. The price uh, gouge, if you buy a car at uh, that price, insurance is not going to cover the price. Um, the government needs to get busy and take care of these problems. Well, that would be the, the supply chain shortage. And, and by the way, like I say, for everybody who thinks electric vehicles are the future, and I don't want to go down this route in this discussion, but I, you know, j- just ask yourself a question. The, the, the batteries, there, there isn't even a supply chain for the, the batteries that are out there. I mean, at least with the computer chips, you've got some sort of supply chain, and it's, it's delayed with these batteries and producing them. I, I think we are years away from being able to produce them at the volume we need to try to match some of these projections about how many people they want to get in electric cars. And that's, that's again, without talking about the, the grid. 855-616-1620. Bob in Grafton. Bob, you're on WTMJ. Yeah, hi, how are you doing? Good. What do you think? Well, for, uh, well I bought a brand new Bronco. I ordered it uh, when they first came out. And that was actually the first car that I ever paid sticker price for. Do you mind if I ask you what you um, paid for it? What would you pay for it, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, it came out to $58,000. Okay. Wow. <laughs> but I got the Sasquatch package on yeah. it, and, you know, it's it's nice. Yeah. I've seen them going for over $100,000 online. But uh, my point is um, I went back to the dealership about a week later. They had a couple more that came in, and they were asking $30,000 over sticker price. And then they were throwing in a 100,000-mile warranty for mm-hmm. seven years, bumper to bumper. But... I called my insurance company, and I ended up getting the uh, vehicle replacement insurance uh-huh. in case the car yeah. gets told uh, they will pay the full value with no depreciation, mm-hmm. even if it's marked up thirty thousand yeah. dollars, and it maybe costs fifteen to twenty percent more. Yeah. Well, and that's obviously. I mean, thanks. Right. You're, you're, right. Your coverage is going to depend on on what your coverage is. That's not a particularly profound statement, but that that's it. But at, at the same time, but even then, you're in a situation of of even even if it's completely covered less the deductible you're in the situation of trying to find that car uh, again you know it's and that's because i mean how many of those cars are, are rolling around and then waiting to have it ordered and things like that it's it's just this ongoing problem for people who are in in the market jeff my fiance recently purchased a new mid-size suv four months ago her middle of the road model was 32.5 all-wheel drive cloth seats and non-turbo four-cylinder um her choice was the hyundai santa fe and then they go on to add that they think as of this new model kia and hyundai have corrected the easy theft problem which we certainly hope for but the 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 problem and the under i guess the point of this this story and the underlying problem is that you're in a situation where you've got you you've got people who cannot people of average means who cannot afford what what the cost of the car is, and they're struck in, stuck in a situation where they're trying to figure out how to replace these vehicles. There's even if they've got the money, 
there's no money, there's no vehicle out there to replace, so you're kind of in this limbo. So what you're doing is you're trying to say, okay, well, I, I can't find a car, even if it's a used car, I can't find a comparable one that's four years old, so now i got to find one that's six years old or whatever. It's just it's an ongoing mess, and unfortunately, it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. So delighted to have you with us. There's a story in today's Journal Sentinel, which is, it's one of these absolutely, totally, 100% mind-boggling sort of stories. The If you looked up the picture, if you looked up the definition of train wreck and or hot mess in the dictionary, you would see a picture of Milwaukee City Attorney Tierman Spencer. Now, we have talked about this before. For years and years, the city attorney in the city of Milwaukee was a guy named Grant Langley. And Grant was pretty much apolitical. And he he ran the city attorney's office in a way that I consider to be extremely professional, which isn't to say that that he did everything right. You know, it's you know, when you're when you're a city attorney, when you're a district attorney, you're always going to be faced with sometimes challenging cases and your obligation and your job is to represent the taxpayers of the city. And and there's always going to be, uh, again, some sort of tension that occurs there. And there were some community activists that got upset with Grant Langley because they they felt that he wasn't aggressive enough in in, he he aggressively defended the police department, for example, and things. And some people said, oh, this is terrible. You know, we've got these these cops and we should be paying out more money, et cetera. But, but in general, I think Langley did a pretty good job. Forget it. I think he did a very good job in a difficult situation. And he was in the city attorney's office for, for decades. Well, what happened is two elections back, he was on the fence about running again and then kind of decided at the last minute that he was going to run. But I, I really, I never thought his heart was in it uh, in that race. And so you had Langley that was running, you had a former city attorney, a guy named Vince Bobbitt, who's well-known in the community. He was running. And then you had a guy named Tierman Spencer who was running. Nobody in the city had ever heard of Tierman Spencer. He had no significant experience doing municipal work, no significant sort of profile, but he, he was he, he was black, and he ran on this campaign of, hey, it's time we need the first elected black you know, city attorney, and, and that— a couple years ago, despite the fact that he was a lot less qualified, he was able to, uh, again, the rate the election was somewhat racialized, and, and that, that's all well and good. I mean, that, that he ended up winning. Langley ran a lackluster campaign, and Chairman Spencer rolled in. Oh, okay, that, that's fine. Since then, it has been a complete and total disaster. You've had approximately half the city attorney's office who, who's left. Now, it, it's not unusual, <clears throat> by the way, to have turnover when, you know, you have a new boss that comes in. And that's not always reflected on, on the new boss. But in this case, it's been one problem after another where you have, you know, assistant city attorneys who are, are saying that they've been mistreated and filing various complaints. And it's it's one issue after another. 
questioning whether or not this Chairman Spencer has any business running the, the city attorney's office. And, and th- those have been kind of well chronicled, and it just shows, again, I always say why elections matter. And sometimes th- this idea that we're going to find the hip and trendy candidate or or we want change just for the sake of change doesn't necessarily lead to finding the, the best candidate. Well, anyways, the story in the Journal Sentinel today is is mind-boggling. Let me share with you. Forbidden by ethics rules, Milwaukee City Attorney Tierman Spencer initiated a private talk with judge in a city case. First of all, in, in the law, they call these ex parte communications. These are conversations that you have with somebody that you're not supposed to without the other side knowing about it. All right. You're not supposed to, for example, have an ex parte conversation about the case with the judge. That's one of the big, big no-nos that you learn like the first week that you're in law school. Well, here's the way the Journal Sentinel reports it. In a move called bizarre and highly unusual by legal experts, Milwaukee City Attorney Tierman Spencer initiated a private talk with a judge ahead of a March court hearing. Okay, so that's, first of all, that's the bizarre thing. He's having the ex parte communication. Then he had this ex parte communication to say he disagreed with the arguments of his own city attorney in the case. So I, I just, okay, so first of all, you know, ethically, you, you can't have these ex parte communications. But then he apparently sought out this judge to say, okay, we represent the city. My employee, my assistant city attorney is going to be making these arguments, and I think he or she is wrong. I, I, I swear, I've never heard anything in my life. Um, Jean D'Amato is quoted, she's a retired county circuit judge, saying, I find it very concerning that the city attorney would not only undermine his own assistant, but do it in an ex parte fashion that's forbidden by ethics rules. In 16 years on the bench, she said she'd never had someone approach her in the manner that Spencer had done with the current Milwaukee County judge. And, and of course, then they quote all these other legal experts who are saying the same thing. And, and, and just if you don't believe anything else I say over the course of the three-hour show today, let, let me tell you that this isn't even close. I mean, this, this, this is, it is not close that you seek out a judge who is, the lit, who is deciding a case and have a conversation with them about the case that the other side doesn't know about. This, this is not even close when it comes to ethical things. And then the more mind-boggling aspect of this is apparently you are, you are arguing ex parte against your own employee who's representing, the, again, the, the city. I, I don't even know where to start with how wrong this is, but this is, it's not an isolated thing. You, you've got, the, the city attorney's office is completely and totally out of control at the top. And I, I don't know that there's much anybody can do about this until the next election rolls around, other than to remind people that elections do matter. And sometimes when you decide to elect somebody who is completely and totally unqualified and over their head, over their heads, this is, is what you get. It's just, it is an almost unbelievable story. But given everything that's gone on in the city attorney's office over the last couple of years, Maybe it's not. I'm Jeff Wagner. So, Jane, I've just, I was, as I always do, I was listening intently to your newscast. And, of course, the lead story was this federal judge in Florida who has struck down the the extension of the airline mask mandate. I am, uh, I'm, I just, I just pulled it up. Um, and I, I guess my question was, you know, what happens now? Um, and 
it's I have the 59 page court decision. I've just I've just gone down to the bottom because I was wondering if she was going to stay her decision. Sometimes, you know, the judges, you know, that there's going to be an appeal. And sometimes what they'll do is they'll say, OK, we're, we'll put this on. the hold. This is my ruling. We'll put it on hold and give you a chance to appeal. Um, I, I am looking at the end of it and there's no stay. So she has declared it unlawful. She's vacated the mask mandate. And um, I, I I mean, unless there the, the next step would be for the Biden administration to appeal to the Fifth District Court of Appeals, I would guess, and see if they could get a stay. But at least having just heard your news report in the last minute or so, right now, there, there's, like there's, there's no stay. So, I mean, they, they would have to, if they want to continue to fight this battle, they'd have to go to the and try to get an emergency stay because, as at least I read this right now, um, that the mask mandate has been tossed out. <laughs> so, I, what, what, if you're if you're getting on a plane tomorrow or you're going to the airport, you know this you afternoon, keep one, you may just want to keep one on you. Well, well, exactly, or, or be listening because I, I don't I don't know. I wish we, we have these definitive answers because, like I say, sometimes when when the judges do this, they'll, they'll delay it for an appeal. Um, but as of right now, looking at the order, I see I see nothing in my quick review of a 59 page order that delays this at all. So. Um, unless there's an action by a higher court. And I'm not sure a higher court's going to want to get involved in this, and I haven't had a really chance to read the 59-page opinion giving out a reasoning and oh, stuff. Oh, come on, you've had a whole minute. I've had a whole minute. <laughs> I thought it was impressive enough that I was able to Truly. find it and, and, and scan down to the bottom looking for that. But, um, yeah, I, I, I can't tell you exactly what this means for people getting on an airplane in the next day or so, but you're right. I'd probably put one in my back pocket just, just in case. hang on to it. Interesting. All right. When we came back, when we come back, okay, he waved at the crowd. He just didn't use all his fingers. What should happen now? We'll discuss. Yeah, I, I don't know what to tell you. The um, This whole mask mandate thing in, in airplanes and in airports and on buses and on trains has been controversial from the beginning. Uh, Biden, it is the one vestige of control and masking that, that Biden has refused to, to give up on. And interestingly, the U.S. Senate voted with in a bipartisan fashion to overturn this rule. There's support to overturn the rule in the House, but Nancy Pelosi doesn't want to embarrass Joe Biden, so she won't bring it up to a vote. So this federal judge, and again, I just glanced through it, it's a 60-page decision, but essentially they're saying that this is that the she finds that the CDC doesn't have the authority to essentially put in this kind of uh, permanent mandate, and um, she found that it, it it's it's it hasn't complied with the public notice comments on the mandate um, and has violated administrative law. Again, I, I take no position on the merits of that, other than this order was the Biden's, <clears throat> Biden's latest continuance was supposed to expire on May third, but this order right now says, no, this this is illegal, and she has vacated the, the order. So unless a stay of that opinion is issued by the Court of Appeals, which would require the Biden administration to go to the Court of Appeals and get somebody to issue the stay, the, the, the order does, in fact, disappear. And with the timing of all this, given that it's expected to expire on May 3rd, makes the timing of an appeal very, very difficult. But what, what this means for you, if you're going down to the airport tomorrow or the next day, whether or not you have to wear the mask on the plane, I, I can't tell you. With the order vacated, it would seem to me that unless some higher court steps in, that would mean that they, they couldn't enforce the mask mandate. But that's just 
that's just my immediate reaction to hearing something that just came out um, not that long ago. I've been – if you watch – if you get HBO, HBO has had this miniseries on – and it premieres every night on Sunday night. It's called Showtime, and it's a kind of tacky and cheesy um, – miniseries about the start of the Los Angeles Lakers, the basketball team, their dynasty in the 1970s. They started, it, it picks up right with drafting Magic Johnson, I think like in early 1980, and then it, it, it really, it, it goes through like the first season that Magic Johnson was there. And it's it's kind of a cheesy um, thing, um, but it, it, in some respects, it's kind of like this guilty pleasure because you, you watch it and it, it's it's got you know, people portraying these these basketball stars like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and it's got a lot of gratuitous sex and nudity in it and bad language and stuff. And in some respects, it's kind of a train wreck, but it's I consider it to be kind of this guilty pleasure. Well, anyhow, after I saw the first episode or two, this, this, this miniseries is based on a book by a New York Times guy, and the book is called Showtime. And the, the book, I'm, I'm about three-quarters of the way finished with it now. It's kind of a popcorn read. It's, it's a quick read. But it, it talks about the, the Lakers dynasty, not just this one year that the miniseries is set in, but it, it covers them for about 10 years, the dynasty. And again, it's, it's kind of a quick read. And if you're a sports fan, it's kind of interesting. And, and you can see where they've reconstructed the miniseries for just this, this first year. But one of the things that, that comes through in in, in this over the years, is how terrible it was as an opposing basketball player to play in Boston, and, and how it, it, it. This is Boston in the eighties. I, I make no comment about what it's like to go and play basketball in in Boston or for Boston in twenty twenty two. But in the eighties, they, they talk about how the town was just this incredibly racist town, and how if you were a black player you were subjected to just the most vile stuff possible. And they talk about how, like, playing in the Boston Garden was just, I mean, the Boston, the old Boston Garden was just a dump, and they'd have no hot water, and they'd have just, it was just disgusting. Matter of fact, they kind of alluded to some of that if you watch this this thing, this Showtime documentary last night, because they, they had a game in, in Boston, and they kind of documented that. But that's all throughout the book about how awful it is, or at least it was back then, to play in Boston and how terrible the fans were and how racist the fans were and the different screaming and the things that they did. If it's accurate or not, I, I don't know. Now, I bring this up because the NBA playoffs started you know, over, over the weekend. At least they started in earnest. Bucks had a big win yesterday over the Chicago Bulls. Well, one of the, the first-round series that's getting watched very, very closely is the Boston Celtics who finished number three in the East. Miami was number one, the Bucks were number two, and then there was the Celtics. They are playing the Brooklyn Nets. And everybody remembers the the big series that the Brooklyn Nets <clears throat> and the Bucks had last year and how it, it came down to game seven. And the Nets player, Kevin Durant, you know, he had a, had a two-point shot. And if his foot had been like a half an inch further back, it would have been a three-point shot and maybe changed the entire game. Well, anyhow, this... The Brooklyn Nets, the Brooklyn is, is playing Boston, and it was a really, really close game yesterday. Boston won 115 to 114. One of the stars on the Brooklyn team is a guy named Kyrie Irving, and Kyrie Irving used to play for Boston, and then he left Boston and signed this deal with Brooklyn. So the Boston fans, I think it would be fair to say, are pretty 
They are unforgiving on Kyrie Irving, who is also the, the star of the Brooklyn team. So he's apparently getting heckled, um, getting screamed at, getting yelled at, all these, these different things as he's playing the game. And he has a pretty darn good game yesterday, but ultimately, you know, Brooklyn loses. Anyhow, there's one point in the game where Kyrie Irving makes a three-point shot. And then there's all these fans that are screaming at him. And as he turns to run back, well, he takes both hands and he waves at the crowd, except he's not using all the fingers on both of his hands. Matter of fact, he's only using one finger on each of the hands, and you, you can guess which, that, which finger that is. So he makes this obscene gesture collectively at these people who have been um, screaming at him. And then afterwards, he's not apologetic at at all. They said, yo, you made this obvious gesture to the fans. It's not like, no, 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 I was waving and this was my three-point. Ah, he said, nothing new when I come into this building. This is what they're going to do. He said, this is the energy they have for me. This is the energy I have for them. And it's not every fan. I don't want to attack every fan, every Boston fan. But when people start yelling expletive and expletive and expletive at you and all that stuff, there's only so much you can take as a competitor. We're the ones expected to be docile and be humble and take a humble approach. Nope. Expletive that. It's the playoffs. That's what it is. I know what to expect in here. It's the same energy I'm giving back to them. So yeah, I flipped them off and I'm not apologizing for it. All right. What, if anything, should the NBA do to Kyrie Irving? 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Okay, before we go to the phones, just a couple texts. Jeff, I don't think the NBA should be allowing vulgar language or violent behavior from players or fans. It seems out of control. He should be suspended for the series. Jeff, it's about time a sports player gets a chance to say something back. Shame on the crowd. Jeff, the violence and vulgar attitude in the NBA trickles down all the way to high school, and you see more and more violence among high school basketball games and even grade school. I say hit them in the pocketbook. Now, this is, of course, not the first time that Kyrie Irving has been involved in stuff like that. He was um, fined earlier for yelling at, at the Cleveland crowd. He was uh, he played a key role in Cleveland and when they won the championship in 2016. But anyhow, no question about it. He makes obscene gestures at the Boston fans, and apparently there's some other reports that it wasn't just obscene gestures, but he, he, invited, um, he invited the crowd to do certain things, which might have been anatomically impossible, but he was clearly, he was giving back what he was getting. Very, very vulgar crowd yelling things at him. So what do you do with Irving. 855-616-1620. Let's start with Patty in Oak Creek. Patty, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon, Jeff. I'm glad you brought this up. First of all, get your big boy pants on, okay? And he is nothing but he's classless. Okay, he'll never be a legend. He's not a superstar at all. You, There's no comparing, comparing him to our bucks. So what should happen to him? Don't find him. No, uh-uh. No money at all. Let him sit the whole series. Let him sit the whole series and not play. You know, I was at the game last night. I'm a huge Bucks fan, and I go to all the Bucks games, season ticket holder. And the Bulls fans were saying some things yesterday and, and, taught, and just right. doing some things. But, you know, I'll tell you something. The section that I was sitting in, Jeff, yesterday, nobody was going back at them. You know, because we, we have class in Milwaukee. No, they think that they can come here. Some Bucks fans, excuse me, some Bulls fans. I'm not saying all the Bulls 
both, excuse me, both hands are bad. It's just a pocket of them. So you get some juice in them, they start saying things and so on and so forth, saying that this is our city, not your city. But, you know... Well, Patty, let me, like but let, let me ask I mean, you... you but, yeah, let me ask you this, Patty. Do you think that the the players should be subjected to that. So, okay, let, let's, I mean, Kyrie Irving doesn't just do this out of the clear blue. You, you've got a bunch of leather-lung Boston's fans who are clearly yelling terrible, probably racist things at him, and he responds. So um, are, are the players just supposed to take it, I guess? Okay, here, I got, I got a remedy for that too, Jeff, okay? Uh-huh. So if you find out there's ushers there, there's security, there's a lot of people around, there's other fans, uh, you, 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 you point toss those them. people out. Yeah, okay? and you toss them. So let's just say hypothetically, yeah, you, let's just say I'm a season ticket holder, and you and your, you and your buddy, get see, you take my season tickets. Okay, we're going to get penalized because you were sitting in those seats, so you got you to definitely do the fans too. Okay. You know, and I, I totally get it. You know, right. so no. I think so. Okay, I appreciate the perspective. No, no. Thanks for. I appreciate the perspective. I I don't know. I mean, suspending him seems to me to be ex- extremely harsh. At the same time, the guy is a serial, serial s e r i a l as far as as offender in in this regard. And you know, his response is, "Well, this is what they're giving to me, and that's why I'm giving it back." And I, the reason I led into this with discussing this book I'm reading, Showtime, is it, it talks about just how how awful it is to play in Boston like in back in the 80s and it doesn't seem like it's it's changed that much over the years I, I mean do, do I think you have to do something yeah I think you probably have to come down with a fine but at the same time it does raise this question about if you've got these leather lung Boston fans who are screaming stuff that provokes that on the one hand as the athlete you have to be above that and you have to ignore it at the second time second time I, I think maybe this does underline this problem about maybe maybe there should be somebody in Boston that it's kind of reining this in so it doesn't get that out of control. Let's talk to Mike in Illinois. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Good afternoon, Jeff. How are you? Good. What do you think? What do you do with him? Well, I think he should be fine. As you said, it's not his first incident. And if you don't take any action at all, it's going to kind of be like players think that, you know, they're able to, you know, shout obscenities. I mean, he didn't do a run our test and run into the stands. Right. You know, but you can't allow that to go on. I mean, I, I agree with the previous caller somewhat that you got to be a little thick-skinned. I mean, when they're playing at home, they probably get admired disproportionately, and when they're playing away, they get, you know, taunted disproportionately. But right. I think it just kind of comes with being a celebrity, especially yeah. in a sports arena where there's high emotion. Um, so, I mean, yes, I'm sure there are fans that say some things that are just really bad, but I do think that the players have to be a little thick-skinned. No, I, I'm with you. I, I get, and I, I think you make a, a really interesting. You make a really interesting point, which is, if 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 he had physically gone into the stands and, and started, you know, getting into a fist fight with somebody because something they said to me, that's a different story. And then you're you're kind of looking. You're definitely looking at suspensions. What what he did was he was being taunted, and he kind of taunted them them back. I, I think you have to be above that as an NBA player. And like I say, this isn't the first time he's done that. So, yeah, I think you have to find him, and I think you have to find him a lot. 
Um, suspending him, to me, that strikes me as being extreme. But I think the flip side also is you, you've you got to expect the building to get control over the fans. And I look, I, I understand fans are going to yell things. I, I, I get that. But is there a limit as to what you can yell? It's one thing to tease or to heckle opposing players. It's another thing to be screaming obscenities or, you know, whatever sort of stuff that I think we would all agree crosses the line. In any event, um, my sense is Kyrie Irving, um, it's going to be an interesting, I think they play on Wednesday night. Be interesting to see how that reacts. And in between now and then, I think he's going to have to pull out his checkbook. Back with more in just a minute. So glad to have you with us. Coming up in the 2 o'clock hour, they used to be the greatest jobs in the world. Now they can't find people to fill them. What is going on? The moratorium on utility shutoffs is ending. About 8,000 people might lose power if they don't pay up. Is that fair? And should we stop stopping people for minor traffic offenses? All that and a lot more coming up. Stick around. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the program. During the break, I had an opportunity to take a, a little bit of a longer look at the 59-page ruling issued by the U.S. District Judge in uh, Florida, voiding the, the national mask mandate on both airplanes, in airports, and on other forms of public transportation. And as as I thought when I read through it, it's very I've got I've got a link to the opinion if you want to see it in the story. If you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner six twenty. But so I really have no position on on the legal her legal analysis. Haven't had a chance to look at this. But in the ruling, um, it, the judge does say that the only remedy is to vacate the rule entirely across the country, and that a limited remedy would be no remedy at all. So as it stands right now, the mask mandate has been overruled, and as soon as the the decision is filed, it, it goes into effect unless the Biden administration, like I say, is able to run into the appellate court and get the, it would be the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, I believe, get um, some judge to issue a stay on this. Whether they're going to do it, whether they'll be able to do it is, um, it, I don't know. A couple of people are texting me saying that they're they're planning on, on flying tomorrow or on Wednesday, and what do I think is going to happen? And the answer is, I, I don't know. But as it stands right now, a federal judge has invalidated this. She has declined to issue a stay of her ruling. So unless a higher court intervenes, seems to me that that mask mandate is now history. Will a higher court intervene? Well, I don't know. Um, six to five, you pick them. All right. I've told this story before. If you ask my brother, who is a very successful lawyer in town, if you ask him what his best summer job is, he will unquestionably tell you that when he, he went to Marquette uh, undergraduate and Marquette Law School, and there was a there was a year or two where when he was a Marquette undergrad, he worked during the summers for their their building and recs department and and he he'd cut grass you know that 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 was the job you'd you'd go down there and you'd have a riding lawnmower and you'd ride around and you'd cut grass and you'd you know do, do that stuff he loved it he he loved the job you were relatively well paid for that type of job you were out it wasn't overly physical. I mean, it was hard work, but it's, you know, not like you're working on a road gang in 110 degree heat. He was relatively well paid. You know, when it rained, okay, well, then, you know, they they found other stuff for you to do. You were outside, so you got, you know, fresh air, sunshine, suntan, all that type of stuff. He, He loved it. When I was growing up, and I'm a few years older than my brother, as he tells everybody who runs into us, this is my significantly older brother, Jeff. I, I 
the, the jobs that were really sought after, that like the jobs for high school kids and for college kids, is if you could get a public works job, if you could get a job working in the, in the county park system, you know, working outside and stuff, that, that, that was great. Because again, it, it wasn't the hardest work around, but you know, you, you still, but you were outside, you know, cutting grass, picking up garbage, you know, things like that. These were the incredibly sought after jobs. And at least back then, you had to, you had to know somebody to, to get those jobs, to just to be honest with you, because they were, you know, they were very, very in demand. And if, you know, if, if you had a friend whose father worked for the parks department or something like that, well, maybe your application got published. Now, that was a note I mentioned. They, 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 paid, they, they paid decently for what they are. Well, those days are long gone. Story on today's TMJ4 over the weekend. Milwaukee County Parks is looking to fill 500 seasonal positions, uh, and they're having a hiring event at the Mitchell Park Domes on April 18th. What's that, a couple of days from it? Is that Wednesday? Is that the 18th? No, no, eight, on the 18th. So that, that's when they're, they're having that. Um, at the event— is that today, the 18th, from going on now? Um, at the event, Milwaukee County Parks hopes to find candidates to fill the following positions. Park workers, park rangers, golf grounds managers, natural areas technicians, skilled trade, beer garden servers, aquatic supervisors, I think that's lifeguards, food and beverage team members, horticulture team members, and more. Wages for these positions start around ten bucks an hour, and they top out around twenty-one and a half bucks an hour. So, I mean, I assume the the ten dollars an hour are going to be for the the least skilled and the youngest sort of workers. But you look at this and you think, hey, for a summer job, there's there's worse summer jobs you can have than being the guy that's pouring beer at the um, at at one of the the roving beer gardens. There's worse. You know, summer jobs you could have than being a, a park worker or being, you know, one of the guys that goes out in the mornings and, and cuts the grass on a golf course. They would, I would argue, be relatively attractive jobs. Waukesha just put out a press release today. The Waukesha County Park staff, they have several open positions for lifeguards at their swimming beaches at Fox Brook Park in Brookfield and Menominee Park in Menominee Falls. Paul Farrow, the county executive, says lifeguarding is a great summer job. Not only is it important work for our community, it provides valuable work experience. They're looking for at least 30 candidates to fill lifeguard positions. You have to be 16 years of old age or older early June through mid-August, 20 to 40 hours a week, and the pay ranges from about $10.50 to $14 an hour. So you've got all these jobs, which in the past, and lifeguarding, admittedly, you have to have a certification. It involves kind of a different level of, of training. But you know, cutting grass isn't that hard. Um, serving beer in the beer garden if you're back for college vacation, you know, isn't that kind of a difficult job. And, and, and they pay pretty well. And yet, they are begging to find people. There's 500 jobs in Milwaukee County that are available. 500. Not that long ago, those jobs would have been snapped up right away. You, you wouldn't have to have a, a hiring fair or a job fair to try to get applicants. People would have been, for the last several months, falling all over themselves to get that, that summer work lined up. So my question is, what has happened what, what is going on? Why are they having such trouble filling those jobs? Is it because 
the, the kids um, who would typically be filling those jobs? Is it because they're working other jobs in the private sector that, that pay more? You can go flip burgers you know, at a burger doodle and make a little bit more. Or is it because they have no interest in working in the first place? Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I hope it's not that second choice. I hope it's not the latter because I'm, I am a firm believer that working during the summer is, is just so important to a young person's development because it helps you learn the value of money. It helps you learn about scheduling, the fact that you have to be somewhere at a particular time, and it helps you build a work ethic that I think carries over um, throughout most of your life. And I, I did some crummy jobs, you know, when I, when I was a kid, but I was actually glad to get those jobs. Our number is 855-616-1620. Why are we having so much trouble filling these jobs, which are clearly seasonal type of jobs designed for high school kids or college kids, you know, back for the summer? 855-616-1620. We discuss. Eight five five six one six one six twenty, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Okay, the truly dumb text of of the day. So, your brother loved working outside. Is he going to apply? Well, he's he's an extremely successful attorney. No, this is a, but these are perfect jobs for for high school students. They're perfect job for college students. You know, they're seasonal. Working for the park system is great. They they pay a reasonable rate and yet they they, they can't find people to fill them. And I'm not just talking about, you know, the lifeguard jobs. I understand lifeguarding involves all sorts of different stuff. You have to be certified and then in many cases being a lifeguard, it's not just being a lifeguard as being a babysitter because people, you know, dump their kids off at the pools and you end up having to watch them. 855-616-1620. What's going on? Peg in Germantown. Peg, you're on WTMJ. Lost Peg. Okay, let's talk to Glenn. Glenn, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, sir. Uh, When I was growing up, I worked every summer. I worked for Milwaukee Public Schools. I worked for the Parks and Rec. My children also worked at an early age, 14 years old. But I think it's generational. Uh, Their children, my grandchildren, who are in their teens, don't really want to work. They don't want uh, these jobs. We keep talking to them about it. I've talked to other uh, teenagers at that age, and they're really not interested in working on these jobs. I just think it's Generation Z has a different outlook. And That's you know, my take. and where I think are the par- a lot of jobs yeah. in the private sector? Well, yeah, no, thank, yeah. thanks for calling. And I, I mean, it was see, it was, and I understand that there's. There, there's this this attitude out there that well we don't want people to have to work because you know it's the summers and they're supposed to relax and and all those things to which I would say bull I mean you 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 can do multiple things you can work at that summer job and you can still go to the band camp or you can still go to the football camp um, you you can do th- those multiple type of things I guess I just always viewed the summer as this opportunity to kind of make that spending money that I was going to then you know live on in 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 the fall or wherever and like I say a lot of these jobs that we're talking about are 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 
would, would be decent jobs for, again, what they are. Not for somebody who's 45 years old with, you know, a master's degree, but for somebody who, you know, you, you've got a 19-year-old kid that's looking to, I don't know, make some money during the summer. I think you could go a lot farther and do a lot worse than, you know, working as a, as a server in a beer garden, you know, pouring beer or, again, working, you know, raking the sand traps at a golf course or driving the lawnmowers, and yet they can't find anybody. Let's talk to Peg in Germantown. Peg, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi, Jeff. How are you? I'm well, thank you. What do you think? Well, here's what I was telling your screeners. So several years ago, uh, my son worked for Mequon DPW. Um, He was a college student, and this was a summer gig for about three years. He loved it, absolutely loved it. And the only reason he didn't go back was simply because he was able to get an internship um, as an engineer and went from there. But I, I really think, Jeff, a lot of it is pay. I really do. You have a lot of jobs out there where you can make $15, $18 an hour starting. Um, and I think kids now have that expectation that they're going to get out of high school or, or for a high school job, I should say, um, in the summer, and they're going to be making the big bucks. Mm-hmm. And I, I really think it's a pay thing. So you think that the the vast and, and I, I mean I don't know the answer to this, but you would say that the vast majority of like high school kids ages sixteen and up or college kids back for the summer, you think the vast majority of them are working just in the private sector, perhaps where they're making more dough. I really do. You know, um, very quickly, Jeff. My daughter works at Children's. She works part time, and. Um, She's part-time money. She's doing very, very well. Mm-hmm. So I do think there's a sense out there that um, kids aren't going to work for what they perceive to be chump change. Yeah, and well, back in the day, yeah. I, I would have been thrilled with ten dollars an hour. <laughs> yeah, no, no kidding. No, th- thanks for back back in the day. Well, you know, it, it is interesting. My my granddaughter. I mean, she's she's got a, she's going to be a college freshman next year, and her in the nursing field, and she's got a nursing related job that she's working at this summer, and she's had a job there. My my nephew works at. Uh, he's got a seasonal job. He works at a, at a golf course, you know, at a driving range and stuff, and works as many hours as he can legally get during the summer. So, I mean, I'm not saying everybody is out there, and, and maybe you're right. Maybe everybody's working. I, I don't I don't think that that's necessarily the case. And if it is, then what they have to do is clearly kind of up the, the pay. But I think it's more complicated than that. Lamar in Orlando. Lamar, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. <clears throat> Good afternoon, Jeff. Uh, always a pleasure. Thanks for taking Thanks for my calling. call. So, I think it's a combination of yeah, I think it's a combination of things, because here in, in, in Orlando, we have all these theme parks, uh, both the majors and the minors, that are struggling to hire those seasonal workers, and some of these theme parks are offering hiring bonuses as high as $2,000. I couldn't imagine I've gotten that much money at you know, 15, 16, but they're struggling. But I think it's a combination of things. Number one, we give our, with respect to like our teenagers, we give them everything. They're, we give cell phones at like age five, and they get like everything. So what is there to work for, number one? Uh, number two, I think that it's a worth ethic issue, right? Because we give them everything, they don't want to go out and, and work. And then number three, they can make money sitting at home doing TikTok and 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 um, you know like like YouTube and anything like that. And when 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 my teenage daughter was getting of work age, I was talking about having her start to work at like fifteen, uh-huh. and my peers were looking at me like, why? why? Her summer <laughs> is for her. Why, why would you do that? And my whole thing was to establish a worth ethic. Yeah, you know, because I work with what I call whippersnappers. Those people in the in the twenty the twenty something that call whippersnappers, uh-huh. they don't have a worth ethic whatsoever. Because and because we don't put it in them when they're younger, because 
their summers for them. Yeah. And I think that that's crazy, but I think that's a combination of things. Interesting. You know, Lamar, you could be honest. I mean, again, it, it is that question of, of the work ethic. That's why I think that they're—look, and, and I, I appreciate you—, you you, you, you want to give people time to do fun stuff during the summer. At the same time, when, when I think about the part-time jobs that I had in high school and in college, I, I learned stuff from, from all of them. Some of the things I learned is I don't want to do this for the rest of my life, so stay in school. <laughs> so that was an important thing. But but also, it was this idea that you, you've got to be somewhere, okay, that you know your your shift starts at 3 o'clock, so you got to get there or, or whatever. And, and, and that was a value as well. And I can still remember getting those, those paychecks, and it was like, Okay, you know this is cool. This is money that I am getting because of things that that I have have done, and and I guess that that's what I think that you don't want to ever lose. Now, you know, maybe it is a deal. Here, here's another text I'm getting. Jeff Summerfest has openings, and so do their vendors. It's only certain weekends. People need to apply, please. Well, that that's it. They're again, they're desperate. This is a type of thing where. You know, Summerfest needs people and th- th- to walk the grounds and, you know, pick up trash and stuff like that or, you know, to do all these different things. There, there's there's all these jobs that are out there. And if it's, if it's well, I can't do it because I've got a better job somewhere else, that's okay. But for the 16 or 17 or 18 or 19 or 20 or 21-year-old that's out there just looking for a seasonal do- job between June and, you know, mid-August to make some bucks – they're there. There's no excuse not to be looking into something. And I guess my message to mom and dad would be, you know, you, you want to encourage your kids to do this because beyond just the money, there's going to be a value that comes to it, a value that I don't think you can even, even calculate as the kid gets older. Just a couple of texts before I throw out the news. Jeff, I was a lifeguard in Milwaukee County Parks. Best job ever. I make way more money now, but it was the best job ever. I got a tan, met girls, and a paycheck. I had not a care in the world. Love it. Ben says, can you imagine if all those kids stealing cars would be working at jobs instead? Well, there's a value to that. Jeff, I work for municipal government. We tried to hire a part-time DPW employee for the summer to cut grass and pull weeds. We offered $18 an hour. We only had one applicant, a 72-year-old retiree who we ended up hiring. I mean, it's it's 18 bucks an hour to to ride around on a riding lawnmower and cut grass and okay, you know, pull weeds and I understand it's not the most glamorous thing, but it's $18 an hour and they can't fill it with anybody under the age of 72. Oh well. I don't know. What do I got going on this summer? Ah. No. We talked about this several months ago in a, in a slightly different context. And some people said, oh, well, this doesn't work. It's going to go away. And I, I, I wasn't sure about it. Journal Sentinel has a story in their business section about this. Love letters to sellers may give home buyers an edge in a tight market. Here's a few tips on how to write one. So here, here's what they're, they're, they're talking about, that right now it, it is still – maybe less so than it was six months ago, but it's still a, a seller's market when it comes to houses, particularly nice houses. And, you know, you hear these stories all along about, you know, someone will put the house on the market for X amount of dollars, and then next thing you know, you'll have people coming in and they'll be offering ten and twenty and $30,000 more than the asking price. And sometimes it's all about the money, but sometimes it's about 
more than that. And so what this story is talking about, and this has been going on in the real estate market for several years, but I think it's become more pronounced, where what happens is you have real estate agents who encourage the prospective home buyer to to write a letter, to, to reach out to the seller and, you know, tell them why they want to buy the house. Now, lest you think that that's completely silly. Well, why would it be anything other than money? Well, sometimes it is. And I'll, I'll tell you my personal story, and then we're going to open up the phone lines. Um, I, The first house I purchased with my late wife, we, we bought it in 1988, a house in Whitefish Bay, about a block off the lake. I liked the house. My late wife loved the house, just absolutely loved the house. And I, I, I have no doubt that you know, if she had not passed away, we we would have still you know been been in there. But because she, she absolutely loved everything about that house, me, I liked it, but I didn't have that kind of attachment. So Sue passes away, and you know, I we end up putting the house you know on on the market. And it, I mean, I I can remember that the first people that walked through the the door, and this was, we put it on the market on a snowy February Monday, and this is a few years back. So it was before the housing market had gone completely nuts. But you know, I mean, it was a desirable. I thought it was a desirable house in a desirable neighborhood. And the first people that, that walked through the house ended up making an offer, which was close to the asking price, but but slightly below. But but. You know, it was still it was it was real. It was fine, and you know we had other showings that were set for you know the the balance of the week. But but these folks they they wrote a letter, and I I, I remember it because it was <clears throat> they talked about how they you know they, they had a, a little boy, and they were expecting I think another child, and they wanted this to be their forever house, and they could you know picture where the Christmas tree was going to be in the living room, and all all these things. It was a couple page letter, and and I mean I read it, and it, it actually it kind of it touched me because okay maybe this is just silly, but I thought I, I thought my late wife would appreciate having this house that she loved. I thought she would appreciate it going to a family where this was going to be their forever house, and you know, you know that that at least I mean maybe they're maybe it was just the complete line of hooey, but I don't, I don't think so. Matter of fact, they're still there. But I, it was idea. It it kind of touched me, and I thought you know she would she would like appreciate having this this house that she absolutely loved go to another family and have that family be able to enjoy it for thirty years like we were able to enjoy it for thirty years and. And I, I thought, you know, I, I can leave it on the market, and I've got other showings. And this was at a time when we—I think we had some people that were like executives from Foxconn that were moving in. And, and I thought, okay, well, you know, maybe— you know, maybe I can get some more money for this. You know, you never know. You know, sometimes, you know, the first offer is always the best offer. But I remember going back and reading this letter, and I thought, you know what? I, I'd like to have these people get this house. And, you know, thankfully, we were able to make the money work out. And, and you know, did I leave a little money on the table? Maybe. But, I, I mean, I think I got a fair price for the house. Or certainly, if I left some money on the table, it wasn't a lot of money. I, I think I got a fair price for the house. And I got this kind of satisfaction, at least in the back of my mind, that I think that the house went to, you know, a family. And I think my late wife would have liked it and would have liked what we did as opposed to, gee, I'm just going to sell this house to somebody who's going to flip it and, you know, make some improvements and flip it. And it just because we had that connection, we had a great amount of time in there. And so in this case, that that letter, it 
it worked. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, so let's let's tee this up. Um, all right, is this is this something that that buyers should consider doing? Is it something that that sellers care about? Is it, you know, if you put your house on the market and you get one of these letters, and that, would you just kind of like put it in the circular file and say, well, I, only thing I care about is, you know, can, will the check clear and, and who's going to write me the biggest check? And I, I understand there's that kind of argument that's out there, and I also understand that sometimes, you know, some. In some jurisdictions, they say, well, be careful doing this because maybe you can, you know, you write a letter and might encourage you to, you know, consider improper reasons for selling the house. In in my case, and I can just tell you, I mean, I, 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 I felt good and I continue to feel good to this day that, you know, I got a fair price for the house. It they. The check cleared. So, I mean, I, I got out from under the, the house and went on, you know, bought the place where I – you know, I live now, but I, I got I felt a little sense of satisfaction that I think I was selling it to people who I think would would appreciate the house, and I, I hope they enjoy it, and I hope they live there for the next thirty years because I have all sorts of good memories about that house myself. So yeah, that love letter worked. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. We discuss. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. Michelle and Franklin. Michelle, good afternoon. Hello. Hi, Michelle. Can you hear me? I can. Hi. Um, so my husband and I uh, were purchasing a home uh, about three years ago. Um, we actually had looked at many homes and, um, you know, offered over asking and just weren't getting that accepted offer. Um, and we did. Um, we were purchasing with a VA loan, which isn't always um, looked at as the most or the greatest type of loan. Um, but we wrote a letter for the house that we absolutely loved, um, and we included a picture of our family and my three children who were all under the age of seven at the time, signed their names and everything. And we got an accepted offer and they said that the letter is what kind of sold them on our yeah. offer. Yeah. And, and you were making a competitive offer. I mean, I'm, I'm getting a number of texts from people saying sure. that, that, that that they don't care that, you know, if you get $10 more. Well, OK, well, that, that's fine. But I, I don't know. But I, I, I had an emotional attachment to to this house. And in particular, my late wife had an emotional attachment to this house. And I thought, oh, OK, this this is the type of family she'd like the house to be sold to. So obviously you touched something in, the, you know, in, in the folks that you were trying to buy a house from. And I, I, I think that, that that's great. It it helped you stand out from other um, offers. Right. Yep, for sure. Works. No, thanks for calling. Now you do, and a number of people are texting. You, you have to be careful. In some jurisdictions, they discourage this because, and you got to be a little careful here, you have, there, there's the Fair Housing Act, and there's some people that I think in an exercise of, of over-caution would argue, well, you know, you're, you're not entitled to, you know, um, not sell a house to somebody because of an illegal basis. So the, the argument goes if, you know, you, you get one of these love letters and there's something in there that you could argue that, you know, caused you to sell them the house as opposed to somebody else, and it would be for a reason not permitted for the Fair Housing Act, maybe you could get sued. I, I don't know how real that is. In, in our case, I didn't have other offers. I just decided to go with the first offer I, I got so that there wasn't an issue. Jeff, my friend wrote a love letter for the house she bought recently. She did pay over asking, but there were 19 other offers, some higher than hers. She 
she got the house. Jeff, I feel it's very reasonable and a good thing to do. I'm the kind of person that always wants something to get used by someone who would appreciate this. Jeff, I'm a realtor, and I almost always have buyers write a love letter. Um, Her name is Roberta. Roberta says, I I think that they definitely— work. Um, Jeff, we sold our house last August in Door County. The realtor would not show us any letters. I think he was afraid of a lawsuit if he showed favoritism. Well, I mean, that's that's the argument that that's out there. Jeff, your story about selling your house reminds me of what's good in humanity. It's not all about money, but it's about what connects us. And yes, I believe that there is something to say about selling a home to the right person or family, not just at the right price. Now, don't get me wrong. <laughs> you know, I, I, it, it was a very, very fair price. So, I mean, it, it's not like I, you know, and, and you know, when, when you get an offer and it's a good offer, you can always hope that there's going to be a better offer. But, you know, sometimes that first offer is going to be the best one you get. Holly in Grafton. Holly, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi there. So, Hi, yeah, the I'm a realtor in the uh, local market, and, yeah, they are strongly, strongly advising us not to have letters written because of being sued because of fair housing. We're in a market. This is the worst we've ever seen this market for buyers. It's mm-hmm. absolutely horrible, and they they don't want it. It takes you know that one couple buy, one or two buyers to drive by, by the house and be like, wait a second, I wrote an offer and they didn't sell it to me because I'm a minority. But look at the you know a Caucasian couple in the yard. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess there's always right. There's always there's always that that risk that you run that that somebody could do that. I guess at the the same time, at the same time, I I, I guess it depends on what actually the, the letter says and whether it's defensible or not. Like I say, in my example, this was this was years ago, so it was it was kind of a different yeah. concern. But it I guess that's kind of unfortunate because yeah. I'm not encouraging people to use you know it's, illegal it's things. Yeah, it's super unfortunate. Right. Yeah, it's super unfortunate, and I used to have my buyers write a letter and put a picture in. Yeah, because you have the family that's been there for years and wants another family to grow up in it, and they want the house to go to someone good. But yeah, it's 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 a landmine. Yeah. So sorry for these buyers in this market. No, no, thank, thanks it's for calling. Yeah, ridiculous. no, you're right. No, and it's it's. It, I mean, and, and I appreciate that there's landmines out there, and and I guess I I understand this in theory. I'm I'm not. I'd be curious to know how many how many successful lawsuits have actually come from you know somebody in part using not just the offer but also using the the quote unquote love letter to 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 sell it. Now maybe it is a little bit of a different time because like I say back I, I didn't I didn't have a bidding war. I didn't have like six families bidding for the house. First people looked at it, made me the offer which was within the, the realm of reason and I, I was glad to accept it. But I will tell you in retrospect I do feel good. I, I feel glad that I think that the house went to somebody that my light wife would would appreciate. Maybe that sounds you know really silly but I, it, it's just the way I feel because for a lot of us, you do develop emotional attachments with with things. Now, I always used to, to, to say, and I'm the first one that says that you you shouldn't love something that can't love you back, and, and you know, that would probably be a house as well. But nevertheless, it's not necessarily the house; it's just the attachments you have. So, in any event, 
Um, some realtors are discouraging these love letters. I still think, understanding that you've got the issue out there with the Fair Housing Act, but once you get around that, I, I think they, they do work. I, I think that, that they, they help resonate and they help develop and all things being equal, you know, give you a connection. Gee, am I a guy who you know, wants to flip the house and uh, you know, put some money into it and then flip it and sell it to somebody else? Or am I a family that wants this to be a forever house? And I hope we don't get to the point in this world where the law doesn't allow people to at least consider some of those extraneous factors, not illegal factors, but just some of those, those other circumstances when they decide you know, who they're going to sell to. When we come back, we're going to find out what John and Melissa have on their minds on Wisconsin's Afternoon News.